Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, we ask that you would use your word to encourage us where we need encouragement, to convict us where we need conviction, Lord, to build us up so that we are more and more transformed from one degree of glory to another. And Lord, use this psalm specifically to encourage us and remind us that in this world we will have trouble, but to take heart because you have overcome this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a new and growing trend in the real estate market, and I'm not talking about everyone moving to South Florida because it's open. I'm talking about the high demand for underground bunkers. Some are calling it the survival shack. Some are calling it the luxury doomsday shelter. And I'm not making this up. There are whole companies devoted to this niche market. One of them is called Survival Realty Brokerage Services. And it's a national company based in Idaho. You guessed it, Idaho. And it works with agents and brokers that specialize in remote, off-grid, bunker-type property. And so other entrepreneurs have actually gotten into this, and they have actually purchased decommissioned missile launch silos, like the one my dad worked in in the 80s in North Dakota, and they've turned them into luxury ways to live out the looming apocalypse. So for $1 million, you can move out to the middle of nowhere, Kansas. You can walk through your two eight-ton front doors. You can descend 200 feet below ground to your very own living room. And since March of 2020, you know when that's, what that was, the demand for these survival shacks has actually soared exponentially. In fact, contractors have not been able to keep up with an ever-increasing demand of a backlog of customers. And one purchaser was actually interviewed. He purchased one in the Virginia area, and he was interviewed by the New York Times as to what motivated this purchase. Here's what he said. I wanted to know that I could keep my family safe in a variety of unexpected situations. If something happens, I know I can put my family in there, or if I'm gone, my wife can lock the family in there. Sounds strange. If it's a virus or civil unrest or a natural disaster, I know my family is protected. So you can hear the motivation in there. And these types of shelters, they are not a new 2020 phenomenon. Actually, during the nuclear threats of the 50s and 60s, the presidents of that time actually commissioned places like this to be built in certain situations. And all of this goes to show that one of our natural reactions to trouble, or in this case, even just the threat of trouble, is to look for some sort of shelter, some sort of refuge that can give us the protection and security we long for. That's what this shows in my mind. And Psalm 62 is written to address the human search for security and refuge amidst trouble. And if we were to take David's resume, who wrote this song, we would see that he is an expert in trouble. He had more experience in trouble than he ever wished for. So oftentimes, if you're, you know, you're in a business uh, environment, they'll bring in an expert in a certain situation of what your business is involved in. Well, if we're, looking, if we're in the business of trouble, David is the expert that we would bring in to help us understand how to deal with trouble. He has tested and tried many shelters of security, many fortresses of protection, and after doing firsthand research on these sources of refuge, he wrote Psalm 62 to publish his findings. And so here's the conclusion 
of his research. This is the abstract from his research. In the midst of trouble, wait in silence upon God, for he is the only refuge that can provide you the ultimate security you are looking for. In the midst of trouble, wait in silence upon God, for he is the only refuge that can provide you the ultimate security that you are looking for. In other words, he's saying God alone is free of all the security defects that are common to every single earthly survival shelter that we would seek out. They all have one commonality. They have security defects at some point. And David says, but there is one who does not have any security defects, and that's the Lord. So let's look at Psalm 62 together, and let's see how David came to this conclusion and unpack what it means and what it means for us. So I want to start by looking at verses 3 and 4. And the reason I want to start there is because that's where David documents for us the trouble he faced that sent him looking for a refuge and a place of security. And David's trouble came in the form of an unrelenting assault on his rightful position as the king of Israel. So if you look at the beginning of verse 4, it says, They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. So he's the king. He's elevated above the others in the nation of Israel. And they say, "Let's, let's take him down. Let's bring him down. And we're not given a specific historical setting of this psalm, but if I had to place it on the timeline of David's life, I would place it during the uprising against David that was led by his very own son, Absalom. So Absalom was was exiled for a little while because he helped murder one of his brothers. I guess that that happens when you murder one of your brothers, you're exiled. He comes back because David welcomes him back. And as a thank you to his father for bringing him back out of exile, he decides to uh, seek after the throne and David's life. And so this was, the, this was the family that David lived in. And Absalom wanted to see his father fall from the throne. And so here are the tactics that he put in place to move towards that end. The first tactic was to find and exploit his weakness. So look at the first half of verse three. It says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. So the picture here is of an enemy walking around the outskirts of your kingdom, looking for the weak spot in the wall that protects you from the enemy. And then they find a place in the fence where it's tottering and it's leaning over, and they think, let's just keep battering this and then we can get through here. Let's find his weakness and let's exploit it. Tactic number two was utilize deception. Says in verse four that they take pleasure in falsehood. So Absalom ran one of the original smear campaigns against David. Telling lies was Absalom's business, and his business was very good. In fact, he was so effective at it, he would would, um, kind of co-op people as they were coming into the, the capital of the kingdom. And he would kind of spread lies about, you know, they can't really deal with this, or they can't deal with that, or there's no one attending to this. This isn't a really good kingdom. You don't have a very good king. And he gathered enough of a following that he actually posed a serious threat to David where he had to flee for his life. He utilized deception. And then tactic number three was the practice of duplicity. We might know it as hypocrisy. The practice of duplicity. Look at the, the end of verse four. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So it's, you do one thing externally, but you really have other motives internally. The worst kind of enemy is the one who puts on the disguise of a friend and plays the part very well. That's what David was doing. So you sometimes wonder, how did it get to this point with Absalom where, where David's like, 
well, I, I have to run for my life. Well, it's because Absalom was very good at what he was doing. Now, we don't have a throne to defend, nor are we being assailed by an Absalom who is coming after our kingdom, but that does not mean we are free of trouble. Our trouble isn't going to be a carbon copy of David's trouble. But what David is saying is, you're going to have trouble and learn from what I experienced in the midst of my trouble. And then what we just read in the Assurance of Grace, John 16, what does Jesus promise us? One of his promises, the promise that we don't necessarily like to claim, is the promise that in this world, you will have trouble. It's a statement of fact. Why does Jesus promise that? Because he knows two facts. We have a fallen enemy and we live in a fallen world. Those two facts alone are underlying the promise that you will have trouble in this world. Absalom was only borrowing from the devil's playbook. He was a type of the evil one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He was like the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so our greatest need to seek refuge in God is because we face trouble not from flesh and blood, but from the spiritual forces of evil that wage a spiritual war against us. We also live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, trouble grows like weeds. One of the promises in Genesis 3 after the fall was, it's going to be thorns and thistles now. You're going to work the ground, but it's going to be unyielding. Sweat is going to fill your brow. Trouble is going to be everywhere. Build the deepest, most secure bunker you want, and trouble will find you. Trouble has a way of being able to pass through walls, as it were. Health trouble, relational trouble, financial trouble, employment trouble, marital trouble, mental health trouble, all forms and varieties of trouble, they can pass through eight-ton front doors. That's the reality. It's not an if question, but a when. When trouble comes, what kind of refuge, what kind of security will you seek? When trouble comes and your soul is unsettled and uncomposed, how will you settle and compose your soul? And what David learned in the midst of trouble is that his best defense was to wait in silence upon God alone. Look at verse one. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. But that's not the only time he says it. Look at verse five. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. These verses are almost identical, but there's one subtle but significant difference. Did you catch it? In verse one, David speaks of his soul in silence as a statement of fact. My soul is waiting in silence. That's that's reality. But then verse five, David is commanding his soul to wait in silence. It's as if he grabs his soul by the collar and says, soul, wait in silence. I'm telling you, you need to wait in silence. And I think the shift is significant. David is illustrating for us that a, a restless soul today is tomorrow's, or a restful soul today is tomorrow's restless soul. It's not a static, check the box, fill out the form, turn it in, and it's done kind of thing. Our souls, our hearts, are stubborn, fickle things. It's a constant, ongoing, demanding process to settle and compose our soul before the Lord. The only thing I know to compare it to 
is like taming a Florida lawn, right? You, you get to that place where you cut the grass or, or someone cuts it for you and it's done. And you can say the grass is cut. And it's the satisfaction of the job completed. Two days later, you come out and you can say the grass needs to be cut. Or I guess I could compare it to, to doing laundry. I don't do the laundry, but I'm told by someone in my house who does the laundry that there, there's a satisfaction of, of putting away that final basket of clothes. And you can say, the laundry is done. And then the next day you turn around and you say, we need to do laundry. <laughs> there's just something stubborn about our soul and our heart. Restful one day, restless the next. At times it seems almost un- untamable. And yet David gives us hope. You can. You can still your soul. You can wait in silence upon God. Well, what does David mean when he calls us to wait in silence upon God? Well, it's the biblical counter response to what trouble does to our soul. Think of what, when trouble comes, what does it do? What effect does it have on your heart? When trouble and trial comes upon us, it often stirs up our hearts with turmoil and gives us a sense of spiritual vertigo that we, we feel like we, we can't get our balance. We, you know, like we've been on a boat and we're on land, but we still haven't returned to our state of balance. And it also, when trouble comes, it fills our mind with unsettling noise. It just is screaming at us with what ifs and what's next and doubts about God and deprecating thoughts about self and my standing with God. That's what trouble brings with. That's why it puts us in a state of spiritual vertigo. So waiting in silence upon God is about regaining our spiritual balance and drowning out all the unsettling noise that trouble fills our minds with. And the way you do that is not by passively trying to empty the mind. So much of what passes today and what is called meditation or or mindfulness is this passive activity of somehow trying to empty the mind. God made your mind and he didn't make it to be empty. It just, it can't happen. God made your mind to be actively filled with truth. That's what waiting in silence upon God is. Not the passive process of trying to empty your mind, but the active process of pouring truth into your mind, filling your mind with truth. A science teacher set empty glasses before his science students. And they're you know, elementary age. And this was the first day of class, and here's an experiment. He's going to see, he's going to test their science knowledge. And he said to the students, the glass looks empty, but it's actually full of air molecules. You can't see. So your assignment is to displace the air molecules that are in your glass. Right? Ready? Begin. I'm not a science person. I like science. I'm a fan of it, but I, I don't quite understand it all the time. That's why I became a pastor. Um, well, the students sat there for a while, like I would have. And they stared dumbfounded at the cup, saying, how am I going to get the air out of this cup? I can't grab it. I can't remove it. Until one kid walked over. It's probably a Bruce kid. Walked over (laughs) to the sink, and he filled it up with water and then set it back down on the table. Air displaced because water was in the glass. To displace the air, you have to fill it with something else that pushes it out. So to displace the noise and lies that often occupy our minds, we must fill it with truth. We must pour truth into our minds. 
So when David calls us amidst trouble to wait in silence upon God, he is calling us to the active process of filling our minds with soul-settling truth. And so what is this soul-settling truth that David wants us to fill our minds with? Well, he wants us to fill our minds with the soul-settling truth of the character of God. That's where he goes first and most frequently. Notice that David describes his trouble in verses three and four, but he surrounds it with a theological fortress of protection in verses one and two, and then verses five and seven. In verses one and two, multiple times, he declares the character of God. Then his trouble. Then in verses five through seven, multiple more times, he declares the character of his God. In other words, he spends less time listening to his trouble and more time preaching to his trouble. He says, dear trouble, meet my God. Restless soul, behold your God. He is my salvation, my rock, my fortress, my hope, my mighty rock, my refuge. To him belongs all power. To him belongs steadfast love. He surrounds his trouble with a theological fortress of protection. And you can almost picture him. When, when David ran away from Absalom, he ran to the caves in Adullam, outside in the wilderness. He looked for you know, a cleft in the rock, and he's hiding in there. And as he's hiding in this rock, this refuge, surrounded by it, it's providing protection, he's thinking, well, this is some protection, but I, I know it's temporary. He can, he can hear the soldiers looking for him. He can hear the uprising growing. And he weighs the shelter that he's in with the God whom he serves, the God who loves him. And he says, God is my only ultimate shield of protection. God is truly the only rock that can surround me and protect me and uphold me. The only place that I can safely hide is in the Lord. And that's why he proclaims over and over the character of his God. Big trouble requires a good grasp on the bigness of God. Big trouble, which you will have in this world, requires a good grasp of the bigness of God. If you have a shallow, superficial grasp of God, if God is my teddy bear, my butler, my genie, my homeboy, whatever it is, that will not hold up in spiritual warfare. That boat will sink when the real storms of life come upon it. That's why there is no area of study No mental endeavor more worthy of your time than contemplating the character of God. That puts steel in your spine. That puts an anchor in your boat that holds you up. And so to aid me in pressing this point home to your mind, I want to read for you a more extended quote from Charles Spurgeon. And it's a quote that he gave as he rose to preach his first sermon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London. He was 20 years old when he gave this quote. And this is what marked his ministry. It has been said that the proper study of mankind is man. I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom we call Father. There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of God. 
It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can grapple with, and in them we feel a kind of self-content, and we can go our way thinking, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, we find that our plumb line cannot reach the depths, and that our eagle eye cannot reach the heights. And all we can say with solemn exclamation is, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while this subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind and more wisdom than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect Nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation into the great subject of God. That's not all. While humbling and expanding the mind, it is also a subject that brings eminent consolation and comfort. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quiet for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout attention to the subject of God. I cannot say it better. David would amen that. And what Spurgeon was doing was amening David. In the midst of trouble, you need to fill your mind with the soul-settling truth of the character of God. But here's the mark of a truly biblical theologian. Like David, you speak of God not just as a rock and a refuge, or the rock and the refuge, but my rock and my refuge. You notice in the psalm, every time he speaks of God, He speaks personally about God, my salvation, my glory, my hope, my salvation. 12 times he gives an address of the character of God and 12 times he claims it as his in relationship with the Lord. The difference between the and my is the difference between merely knowing facts about God and actually knowing God. Knowing mere facts about God is not going to help you in storms. You need to put that personal stamp on, appropriate them and assimilate them into your own spiritual bloodstream. It's the difference between a dead and dry orthodoxy and a living and vital faith. It's the difference between a boat without an anchor and a boat with an anchor in the midst of a storm-tossed sea. So steep your mind constantly in the knowledge of God so that his character becomes not just facts for you, but soul-settling truth as it was for David. Well, another area that David calls us to fill our minds with is the soul-settling truth of the sovereignty of God, or the providence of God, you could say. Now, David doesn't use that specific word or words, but the reality of God's power and control and sovereignty is implied everywhere when David speaks about his God. It's woven throughout this whole psalm. How else can David say in verse 1 or verse 2 and verse 6 that I shall not be shaken 
How can David know that he cannot be shaken unless he knows that his God is sovereign? And think of all the military fortress language that David uses, rock, refuge, fortress. It implies that the God he runs to is powerful and able to protect him, that he's in control. He's not saying all these things because his therapist said it would be good for his anxiety and his trouble. Just repeat these, you know, daily affirmations with David. This is not what he's doing. He's claiming these because he knows that no matter how powerful his enemy may seem, how, no matter how big his trouble may seem, God is in charge. God rules and overrules his enemies and his trouble. Trouble and trials can often appear to us and our enemies can often appear to us as so big and so powerful that we ascribe sovereignty to them. We ascribe power and control to them. Or what they can do is they cast such a thick cloud over the sky that we cannot see that the sun still sits on his throne, that God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases, and that no one can stop his hand or say to him, what have you done? And we can't grasp that. But in the midst of trouble, you can still sing, O Father, you are sovereign, the Lord of human pain, transforming earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain, all evil overruling as none but conqueror could. Your your love pursues its purpose, our soul's eternal good. That's what David could sing. And in the presence of trouble and tragedy, when you can sing that, you have an anchor that can keep you from capsizing. You have what Joseph had when he went through his trials. Joseph could cling to the sovereignty of God and he could say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the deliverance of many. And you have what Job had in the midst of his great tragedy. He lost his 10 children in one day. And he could say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord because he knew that his God was sovereign. And you can even say with Jesus, who clung to the sovereignty of God as he endured the most unjust treatment that has ever been dealt out by the hands of man. Everyone's speaking about justice these days. He dealt with true injustice. And yet when Pilate looked at him and tried to exert his authority over him and said, do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? Jesus, clinging to the sovereignty of his father, said, you would not have any power over me if it had not been given you from above. That's what stabilized him in the midst of all of that. So in the midst of trouble, fill your mind with the soul-settling truth of the sovereignty of God. It is the anchor that holds the boat and it's the pillow that gives us comfort. We can lay our heads down. Well, waiting in silence upon God is not just about filling your mind with truth. It's also about pouring out your heart to God. Look what David says in verse eight. Trust in him at all times, O people. So David is doing at this point is he's not just personally talking about his circumstance. He's now turning to us and saying, here's what I learned and here's what I'm passing on to you. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So what David is saying there is waiting in silence upon God is like a double-sided coin. On the one side is the pouring in truth. On the other side is the pouring out your heart before God. So you need to pour in the truth of God into your mind and you need to pour out all those things that are weighing down your heart to God. So in the midst of trouble, we need to both tell our troubles about our God and tell God about our troubles. 
That's the, that's the double-sided coin of waiting in silence upon God. Well, what does it mean to pour out your heart before God? Listen to how one author defines it. Pouring out your heart before God is like turning the vessel of your soul and heart upside down in God's presence and shaking it out before him and letting all your inmost thoughts and desires and sorrows and sins and struggles be poured out like water before him. Hide nothing from him, for you can hide nothing, and keep nothing from him, for he can handle everything. We often are duped into thinking that somehow we can kind of conceal and and hide the innermost part of our being from him, but he sees everything. So just pour it out before him. Because when we hold on to trouble, and not just trouble, but all the worry, all the stress, all the anxiety that it brings with us, and we don't pour it out from our hearts to the Lord, it's like a pressure cooker that has no release valve or that no one has released the valve on. Just keep sitting there. Pressure building up, building up, building up more. And that's only gonna lead to more trouble. We multiply our troubles when we don't pour out our heart before the Lord. So we should treat every what if, every what's next, every doubt about God, every self-deprecating thought that might come our way, every struggle to understand our standing before God as if someone had placed in our hands a hot potato or a hot coal. If you played hot potato, like the real actual game where you actually take a potato from the oven, you know, they probably don't play it these days for, for obvious reasons with kids. You, you get in trouble. But that's how we should view our worry and our stress and anxiety. It's a hot potato that's been placed in our hands and the goal is to get it out of our hands into the Lord's as quickly as possible. If it sits there, again, it only adds to your trouble. It only increases the pain. But the Lord can handle it. He can handle it. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. In every situation with prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Pour out your hearts to him. Well, finally, to preserve and protect our ability to wait in silence upon God, David warns us against all the counterfeit sources of refuge that we might be tempted to run to. So trouble comes, and our natural instinct is to look for refuge. But the problem is, so many counterfeit, mirage refuges place themselves in front of us and say, here, I can provide the security you need. Come to me. Well, look at verses nine and 10 as David details the ones that he was most tempted to trust in. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are delusion. And the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. What David is saying there is in his position, his place as king, he was most tempted to trust in the might of men and the security of money. Those were the two counterfeit sources of refuge that propped themselves up that made it look like, hey, I can, I can go here and this will protect me. Who needs the Lord as a refuge when you could muster a military force that could stop any other threat that would come your way? Who needs the Lord when you could make alliance with this or that king or that prince and build a bigger army? That was, always the, that was always the danger. But when David weighed man in the balance, he realized that he had nothing to hope for from man ultimately. That man is but a breath that appears for a little while, a mist that is here in the morning and it's gone by the time the sun rises. Frail as summer's flower we flourish, blows the wind and it is gone. But while mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging on. That's what he weighed against man versus the Lord and it weighs nothing more than a breath. Or his temptation was 
Who needs the Lord as a refuge when you can just buy your way out of trouble? David was rich. He was wealthy. He had a massive amount of resources, possessions, material wealth. But when David weighed money in the balance against God, he saw the empty promise of wealth. And he's realistic here. He says here, if your riches increase, he doesn't say repent. He says, if your riches increase, don't set your heart upon it. It's not wrong to gain wealth, to, to be good at your job, to be paid for what you do. But he says, don't set your heart upon them. Because, as Randy Elkhorn has reminded us, when it comes to money, either all of it will leave us or we will leave all of it. But at some point, you're going to have to say goodbye to your wealth. The question is when. And someone was also asking, you know, how long does it take money to disappear? And he said, it depends on how much lighter fluid you use. <laughs> I think the great counterfeit refuge that we're tempted to, because these, these probably might not necessarily be your counterfeit refuges that prop up for you, but I think one that is a great temptation in our day is the counterfeit refuge of amusement and entertainment. It has become the opioid of the masses, the anesthesia of the people. That if pain or trouble comes in your life, if something hard is in your life, instead of dealing with it, instead of filling your mind with truth, why not just fill your mind with an endless stream of triviality on television or screen? Instead of wrestling with the hard realities of life in the presence of the Lord, why not just retreat into a virtual refuge of streaming and social media? has become the great counterfeit source of refuge. That life doesn't have to be hard because you can drown it out with entertainment. You don't have to think about the hard realities of life because you can just amuse, stop thinking, shut it off by turning something else on. And when it comes to seeking counterfeit sources of refuge, especially amusement and entertainment, it is about as helpful as preparing for a marathon by only eating junk food. The Christian life is a race. Life is a race that you are going to have to run. And junk food is not the way to prepare for running that race. I haven't tried it. I don't plan on trying it. But I'm guessing that would be very hard to finish a marathon with that diet. The trouble of life is inevitable because we live in a fallen world with a fallen enemy. And counterfeit sources of refuge, all that they do for us is shrivel our soul and weaken our faith when it comes to facing the real trouble of life. And it's because of our tendency to run to counterfeit sources that David stresses six times, God alone, God only is my rock and my refuge. This is called the alone psalm because this is where you know, David gets that, that sola idea. The sola dea glory, sola fide. God alone is our refuge because he knows that we can, we can look to the Lord, but like, let, let's supplement that with something else just in case he doesn't work out. He's saying, no, no, no. There's no supplements. That only diminishes his honor and glory. Or others will look at God and say, you know what? This just seems like a better, a better alternative. They say, no, it's mirage in the desert. It provides nothing. And what David saw truly, but only dimly in the Old Testament, we see more brightly and brilliantly in Christ in the New Testament. God alone is our refuge from our trouble. He's our, alone our refuge from sin because through faith in Christ, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. This world may condemn you. It may try to cancel you. But you can know that in Christ there is now, therefore, no condemnation. For Christ has canceled our sin by nailing it to the cross. 
and putting it to an end. God alone is our refuge from the spiritual forces of evil. Because he alone transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. He alone equips us with the armor we need to withstand the flaming darts of the evil one. And he alone has put to open shame and disarm the rulers and authorities of this world by nailing our sin to the cross. And God alone is our refuge from all suffering and sorrow. Because through faith in Christ, we have two precious promises that we can cling to and claim as mine in Christ. One is that in Christ, we have a father who is sovereign and promises to work all things together for the good of those who love him. That is a promise that is most precious in every single circumstance. That God is such a loving father, and he's not just a loving father, but he is a lovingly sovereign father who can and delights to work all things together for our good. Even when we don't see how or why, we can know that our God is mighty and he's merciful and he's working all things together for our good. And we we may look at the tapestry of our life from the underside and not quite see the stitching patterns and know what he's doing, but on the other side of eternity, when we get to see kind of the other side of that tapestry that he's woven, we will know that he does all things well. And in Christ, we have a second promise. Graves and grief still exist in this world. And we'll have to deal with them. But in Christ, we have the empty tomb sealed promise that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. One day he will remove all suffering from our lives. One day he will take away all sorrow that fills our lives and the sin that causes it and everlastingly preserve us in the joy of his presence. That's the refuge that we have in Christ. So in the midst of trouble, through faith in Christ, wait in silence upon God, for he alone is the only refuge that can provide the security you look for. Let's pray.